You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. It starts as a pinpoint of light, a faint golden glow drifting far across the water. At first, you think it might be a house on the opposite shore, but it seems closer and burns with a greater intensity, like a fallen star on the ocean. The sky grows dark, rain begins to fall, and you hear the boom of distant thunder. The breeze whips through the spruce trees that line the shore, and the beach turns to froth. A storm is coming. The rain falls harder, driving into the sand. The light on the horizon expands, growing brighter and stronger with each crashing wave until it blazes like a bonfire on the ocean. And then you see it. At the center of the light, a flaming phantom ship is moving east against the wind. She glides through the sable sea and sky, aflame from stem to stern, her full sails and spars and rigging shimmering with red and yellow flame. The ghostly glow, reflecting off the water, silhouettes a hull of cinder and three masts which, black and imposing, connect the storm clouds to the sea. The savage storm has whipped the waves into a frenzy, and the driving rain has wiped from view the lights of the distant shore. Only the ship remains, a raging fire rising and falling in a plain of endless black. A bolt of lightning cuts the sky, a clap of thunder soon follows, and the ship, still blazing, tips forward and plunges beneath the waves, swallowed by the sea. The wind howls in triumph as the tempest devours its harbinger and churns its way up the rocky shoals. The phantom ship has come, and the storm has come with it. You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. Tonight, we're taking a look at one of the most iconic symbols of maritime folklore, the Phantom Ship, said to be the ghost of a sunken vessel that still haunts the ocean's waves. But we're not talking about just any Phantom Ship. These ships are on fire. For over two centuries, people living on the Gulf of St. Lawrence have reported encounters with fearsome flaming vessels that sail against the wind and serve as forerunners, dark warnings for violent storms, destruction, and death. They have been seen by people of all ages, cultures, and employment, from politicians to priests, from teachers to anglers. They've been seen in all kinds of weather, in all seasons, and at all times of day and night, for generations. What are the stories behind these strange specters? And what can we learn from them about our history, our culture, and ourselves? Join me as we navigate mysterious waters in search of the fireship of Chaleur Bay. Part 1. The Fire Ship It's a crisp autumn night in Bathurst, New Brunswick, a small town nestled along the north shore at the mouth of four rivers that pour into a sheltered bay. A young woman crosses a silent, empty street and turns left, beginning her journey across a long, narrow bridge that connects the quaint downtown core with the more populated, more suburban region of West Bathurst. The air is sharp at the edge of the harbor. It races down the street and across the basin, whistles and whips through the guardrails, tousles her hair and makes her eyes water. She burrows deeper into her woolen coat and turns away. She looks out across the bay at the faint lights that lined the opposite shore. They are pinholes in a blanket of otherwise endless black. Without light from the homes across the water, she wouldn't be able to tell where the sea ends and the sky begins. And that's the thing about living on the coast. Most days, it's beautiful. The sun shimmers on the surface of the green-gray water, the clouds shift and roll above the waves. You can even watch the mantle of a storm encroach on and devour the distant shore 
But on the darkest of nights, like tonight, when a warm front blows in and blots out every single star in the sky, it can feel like you're living on the edge of forever. She glances in the direction she is walking, down the bridge to the growing horizon, the angled tops of houses, the church on the hill. But when she turns her attention back toward the bay, she sees something in the darkness that wasn't there before. It's another light, the glow of red flame. Closer than the others, it burns with a fiery intensity in the blackness of the bay. At first, she is alarmed, thinking that the wharf is on fire, that the rope that kept it tethered must have burned, and the flaming wreck is now floating freely through the water. Suddenly, a taxicab screeches to a halt behind her, and the driver and two passengers join her at the rail. She tells them to turn around and fetch the fire department, but they're not listening. They're staring straight ahead, transfixed by the fire. Then one of them speaks. Regarde le jeune qui courant, he says. Look at the people running. She follows his gaze back to the water and sees not a wharf on fire, but a ship. Its hull a bed of burning embers. Its massive sails are bellied out and blazing. The ship is pointed straight at them, and she can clearly see through the flames the figurehead of a woman hanging from its prow. Above, the black silhouettes of panicked sailors and dogs rush back and forth across the deck. There's a woman, too, seemingly in distress, being pulled backward by one of the men, while another brandishes a sword. It's a terrifying yet beautiful sight, made all the more surreal by the fact that everything is completely silent. There are no shouts, no calls, no roar of the fire. Even when the mast collapses and the sails come crashing down, nothing but the sound of the wind and the water. She jumps at the sudden slam of a car door. She reels around and watches as her fellow witnesses climb back in their taxicab and drive away. In a moment, the taillights become two red embers drifting up through the night sky. When she looks back at the bay, the vision has changed again. The ship is now restored, and the fire has been replaced by a ghostly blue light. She watches it drift over the water, illuminating the waves, and then vanish. She stands for several minutes on the bridge, dumbfounded by what she has just witnessed, then continues on her way. The shock is not enough to numb the cold. Her movements are robotic, her mind a fog as she tries to process this strange experience. When she gets home, when she sheds her woolen coat, warms herself by the fire, and shares what she has seen, only then will she learn that she has borne witness to a local legend, the fireship of Chalhéu Bay. The story you just heard is based on the eyewitness account of Florence Godin, an archivist from Bathurst, New Brunswick. I first came across it in The Superstitious Times, an online news website dedicated to exploring Canadian paranormal lore. The site's founder, a Canadian journalist named Brian Baker, sat down with Florence in 2018 to record a story she had shared many times throughout her life. She was just a teenager when she saw it, sometime in the 1950s, on her way to a babysitting gig. She watched in awe from her place on the bridge as a phantom ship and crew burned in the bay. She told Baker, quote, The sails were all aflame, and the fire seemed to be coming from the bottom of the boat. The color was just indescribable. It was beautiful, end quote. Florence didn't know what to make of the mysterious vision. And it was only later, when she shared her story with others, that she learned her experience was not unique. She was not the first to see the Phantom Ship, nor would she be the last. Just two decades earlier, in the week before Christmas of 1935, a farmer spotted a strange red glow on the surface of the bay. Like Florence, he thought it was a structure at first, a barn burning on the opposite shore, until he realized that the shore was over 35 miles away, much too far for a barn fire to generate that kind of intense glow, a glow that seemed to be getting closer the longer he watched. The farmer told a reporter, quote, 
I could see the three masts and the sails apparently blazing, and the hull looked like a bed of blazing embers." End quote. The following year, in 1936, a young man had an encounter even more similar to what Florence had experienced. He was walking to his home in Bathurst in the early morning hours when he saw what appeared to be a devastating house fire near the harbor. He ran through the empty streets and down to the waterfront to see if he could help, but when he reached the shore, he saw not a house on fire, but a large three-masted ship in the middle of the bay, moving against the wind, lighting up the blackened sky like a torch. A few years later, in 1939, a man named P.J. Carroll, a recent arrival from New England, called the RCMP to report what he believed was a very real emergency. A ship was burning in the middle of the bay, easily visible from his home in Caraquette. After he breathlessly relayed this information to the man on the other end, he was surprised by the response. The police officer listened patiently to P.J.'s report, then calmly reassured him that it was nothing. No one was in danger, and he shouldn't worry. It isn't a ship, the officer said flatly. If you believe in ghosts, it's a ghost. If you don't believe in ghosts, it's a natural phenomenon. It's the fire ship. You're a stranger here, you'll get used to it. He was right. These three sightings alone occurred in a span of just four years, within 60 kilometers of each other. And there's plenty more, from two centuries ago right up to the present. There's the time that an entire congregation spotted a flaming ship sailing through the ice-covered bay while on their way to midnight mass. Or the time that the captain of a schooner saw the phantom ship bearing down upon him and scrambled to get out of the way. And the time that an entire fleet of fishing boats chased the phantom ship from one side of the bay to the other, only to watch it vanish before their eyes. In fact, sightings of ghostly lights and flaming ships are so common in the region that they have become an iconic part of the folklore, with some, like that RCMP officer, regarding it as nothing more than a confounding yet commonplace curiosity. Even back in 1892, when a railway fireman spotted a burning ship in the bay with smoke billowing out through the rigging, his panicked call to the engineer was met with the same kind of dismissive energy. His colleague took a moment to examine the horizon, and then said plainly, Hell, that's just the burning ship. For 200 years, the frequency of these sightings has remained relatively consistent, and that's just in one strip of water between New Brunswick and Quebec, where the ghostly vessel is known as the Fireship of Chaleur Bay. But there is another region, a little ways southeast, still in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, where a flaming phantom ship has also been spotted and it's known by a different name. Part 2. The Phantom Ship of Northumberland Strait According to Nova Scotian broadcaster, historian, and author Roland H. Sherwood, the earliest recorded sighting of a flaming phantom ship in the lower Gulf of St. Lawrence occurred in 1800 in Pictou, Nova Scotia. That year, most of the town witnessed a three-masted ship burning far out in the black waters of the strait. Several brave souls immediately scrambled to their boats and set out toward the troubled ship, only to watch it vanish. They stayed for hours after, drifting through the strait, listening and looking for survivors or wreckage, anything to explain what they had seen. But they found nothing. Many in town were worried. They feared that the flaming ship was a bark which had left port earlier in the day, carrying the loved ones of the small community. It had been reported as becalmed off the east end of Pictou Island around sunset. Perhaps a terrible accident had taken place, and the ship had been destroyed. The next day, however, they received word that the bark had been seen far to the east, passing through the Strait of Canso, safe and sound. They were relieved, of course, but also mystified. If all vessels in the area were accounted for, what was seen burning in the strait that night? It's a mystery that has never been solved, despite the flaming phantom ship returning, decade after decade, to appear before an amazed audience, from Boktouche, New Brunswick, to Charlottetown, PEI, to Cape Breton Island, Nova Scotia. It even appeared twice in one week in late November of 1965 off the coast of Cape John, Nova Scotia. 
It was just getting dark when Mrs. Alton Langell looked up from her housework and saw through her kitchen window a ship on fire sailing through the strait. She grabbed the telephone from the wall and called every one of her neighbors to confirm that they could see it too. Word traveled up the cape, and soon every back door was darkened with the shadow of a man, woman, or child gazing out across the purple water at a glowing, ghostly vessel. Two days later, it was back, but this time with a bigger audience. People from Cape John and other nearby communities flocked to the shore, crowding the road with cars as hundreds of people watched the phantom ship for half an hour. Then, according to Mrs. Langill, quote, it just seemed to fade away, and where the bright light had been, there was only the blackness of the water, end quote. In 1970, a ferry crew spotted the fireship somewhere between Caribou, Nova Scotia and Wood Island's PEI, and immediately changed course to rescue what they thought was a ship in distress. In 1988, it was spotted again, this time by the crew of the Borden Ferry. Though many on board saw the apparition, it was not detected by radar. Just like the fireship of Chalair Bay, the phenomenon known as the Phantom Ship of Northumberland Strait has been seen so often and by so many different people that it's become an iconic piece of folklore for those who live along that part of the Gulf. In her book Ghost Stories and Legends of Prince Edward Island, author and historian Julie Watson gives us an idea of just how common these sightings can be. She writes, quote, It was my intention to determine whether there have been any sightings of the Phantom Ship since 1900, and, if possible, talk with someone who had seen the ghost ship. The problem is not finding people who have seen the ship, but rather deciding whose accounts to include, end quote. One of those accounts came from Carol Livingston, a lighthouse historian on the island. It was in March of 1985, around 7 o'clock at night. Carol and her sister were driving along the southern shore on the west end of the island when they saw several strange lights flickering out at sea. They stopped at the side of the road to get a closer look and were shocked to see a ship engulfed in red flame moving through waters that were frozen solid. They watched for several minutes before rushing back to their vehicle. Further down the road, however, curiosity got the best of them, and they pulled over for one last look, but it was gone. The sky and ocean were dark. In 2021, Carol reflected on that moment so many years ago, and told a reporter from Saltwire, quote, I had heard the legend of a phantom ship growing up in West Point, but I never imagined I would see it, and as vivid as you or I. No fog, no mist, we had not had a sip of alcohol to drink. It brings me comfort in knowing many people over the years have seen the phantom ship to support our claim." End quote. And that's a common element in a lot of these stories, nearly as common as the flames themselves. The shared experience, folklore, and convictions of a community are reassuring in the face of uncertainty and the supernatural. To see the fire ship of Chalair Bay or the phantom ship of Northumberland Strait is special, it's like being let in on a secret of the landscape, one with deep connections to the history and culture of the region. You don't need to understand it, only see it, experience it to feel that connection. But we're human. We love a good mystery, and I'm sure, like me, you're dying to solve it. To figure out what people have been seeing in the Gulf of St. Lawrence for nearly two and a half centuries at least. Is it natural or supernatural? Is it really the phantom of a sunken ship? And if so, which one? And finally, are the fire ship of Chalair Bay and the phantom ship of Northumberland Strait one and the same? Well, before we can even attempt to answer those questions, we need to learn a little more about the folklore of phantom ships. Part 3. Haunted Waters if I were to ask you to name a phantom ship, it's likely that just one name will come to mind. The Flying Dutchman. That legendary ghostly vessel has managed to sail its way out of the murky depths of early 18th century English folklore and into the shining waters of popular culture, from a Wagner opera to the Twilight Zone to SpongeBob SquarePants, 
to the immensely popular Pirates of the Caribbean film franchise. The Dutchman is so well known, it can seem like it's the only Phantom ship out there. But there are more. A lot more. When Canadian folklorist Catherine Jolicoeur tried to get a general sense of exactly how many Phantom ships are out there, her team found a whopping 456 stories just in Canada alone. That's a huge number, especially compared to the meager 66 stories they found in the US and the 106 in Europe. With numbers like that, it may come as no surprise that a decent number of those Canadian phantom ships are fire ships. As it turns out, stories of flaming phantom ships are actually pretty common, especially here in North America where there's at least a half dozen sailing the east coast. I won't touch on all of them here because, well, things could get really confusing really fast. Plus, it's likely I'll share one or two of these stories in another episode. So, suffice it to say that even though the idea of a flaming phantom ship sounds exciting and different, the fact that it's on fire isn't particularly unique. That's not the interesting part. What is interesting, the reason I find the fireship of Chalair Bay and the phantom ship of Northumberland Strait so compelling, are their stories. See, here's the thing. Most phantom ships have a single clear legend behind them, a certain story that explains their fate. Sometimes those stories are about ships that actually existed, and you can find their names in history books. They met a tragic, violent, or sudden end, and over time, their stories became legends. In other legends, the phantom ships are of uncertain veracity. If they're not entirely fiction, the true name of the ship has been forgotten, the details have been muddled, and the date of its tragic sinking is vague. But even so, their stories are still crystal clear and never deviate. One phantom ship, one legend. But the fireship of Chalair Bay and the phantom ship of Northumberland Strait are different. Neither have one definitive legend. It changes from place to place, and from person to person. And the stories overlap so much that folklorists and locals alike aren't quite sure if they're the same thing or not. The confusion is understandable. Both Chalair Bay and Northumberland Strait are part of the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and you can sail from one to the other in about three hours. It's easy to imagine sailors traveling through the Gulf, spotting strange lights on their journey, and exchanging their stories from port to port. Easier still, perhaps, is to imagine a solitary flaming phantom ship sailing up and down the Gulf, into and out of bays and straits, warning of dangerous weather, and inspiring storytellers to share, on those stormy nights, tales of violence, revenge, and tragedy. Stories like this one. Part 4. The Curse of the Wicked and Other Tales It was a chilly afternoon in October 1501, when the city of Lisbon, Portugal, came alive with rumor and speculation. An expedition had returned that morning after a long voyage to the wilds of Terra del Rey de Portugal, the mysterious land to the west. Soon the tabernas were buzzing with stories of a strange world filled with towering pines, delicious wild berries, and wide, fast-flowing rivers. A curious crowd flooded the port to watch as 57 men, women, and children dressed in animal pelts were led up the dock in chains, destined for the slave markets. The proceeds would help pay for the voyage, and the price had been high. On top of the usual costs for supply and labor, only two of the three caravels had found their way back across the ocean to the Tagus River. The flagship had been lost, and Gaspar Corte Real, the celebrated explorer and leader of the expedition, had been lost with it. There were no clues as to how or why. It simply seemed that an entire ship and crew had somehow vanished without a trace. A few months later, another Portuguese explorer embarked on his own expedition. His name was Miguel Corte Real. He was Gaspar's brother, and his mission was simple to learn what had happened to Gaspar, his ship, and his crew, and claim ownership of the lands they had discovered. 
With the king's permission, Miguel set sail with three caravels of his own, and eventually reached the same rugged shore that Gaspar had explored the previous year. With no clues to follow, Miguel ordered that each of his three ships sail in a different direction, widening their search and improving their chance of success. Standing on the bridge of Miguel's ship, each officer vowed they would do all they could to discern the fate of their lost countrymen. Regardless of whether or not they succeeded, they would rendezvous at a point near the southern shore by the 20th of August, where, together, they would begin the long voyage home. They said their goodbyes and parted ways, one sailing north, another south, and Miguel heading west, deeper into the wild. Whether it was a lust for fortune that drove him, or his own fraternal instincts, Miguel soon found himself in the same waters that his brother had traversed just one year prior. The gulf constricted and widened and constricted again, as if the world would swallow him whole. And somehow, he knew. Before any sign of exploration or wreckage, before the lookout in the forecastle shouted his sighting over the rush of the waves, he knew he would find his prize. And sure enough, as fingers of land stretched out toward them, as the fog unraveled, it revealed a ship anchored alongside a narrow island, barely cresting above the water. The helmsman struck the bell, and the crew eagerly studied the land drifting by, looking for markers, shelters, lonely pillars of smoke, any signs of survival. There was nothing but the dark trees, standing like people, crowding the distant shore. The afternoon sun slanted over the bay and set the sky and sea on fire. Though the dazzling light and reflection were blinding, the more sharp-eyed sailors swore they could see black figures moving across the deck. When they came alongside and dropped anchor, however, the vessel was deathly silent and still. Miguel called out in greeting, but there was no reply. No sound but the hungry cries of seabirds and the groaning of old ropes and weather-beaten wood. They had found the lost ship. But where was her crew? Where was Miguel's brother? Closer than they realized. For you see, beneath all that sparkling water, in the shallows and the shadow of their hull, what little was left of Gaspar's broken, sun-bleached remains were scattered, a grisly testament to his crime and his punishment. When Gaspar and his comrades first arrived in that new land, they had used deceit and trickery to win the hearts and minds of the friendly locals, trading, giving gifts, and sharing meals. Eventually, they managed to lure some of the more trusting people on board and clapped them in chains. Two of the ships, stocked with new slaves for the market, turned about and sailed east, while Gaspar and his crew continued south and west, searching for more victims. It was in this quiet bay where they found their next target. Gaspar's plan hadn't changed. Spend a few days winning over the indigenous population, then invite them on board and never let them go. What he didn't know, however, was that his would-be victims had a plan to fight back. Whether they had heard stories of Gaspar's treachery or were simply excellent judges of character, the people of the bay saw through his facade, and before he could spring his trap, they sprung one of their own. One night, the bravest members of the group paddled out to the ship and, under the cover of darkness, slaughtered everyone on board. Everyone, that is, except for Gaspar himself. As the ruthless leader of the group, he was given special treatment. At dawn, when the tide was at its lowest, they carried the captain across the rippled sand and lashed him to a barnacle-crusted rock. There, he could do nothing but stare at the summer sky and watch the sun rise with the water, the salt-tinged wind blasting across the beach, tearing at his lips and chest and limbs. There, he was left to contemplate his wretched life as the tide crept in, licking at his back, his shoulders, his chin, until, inch by inch, the sea swallowed him whole. Now, Miguel knew none of this as he stood there studying the silent ship, nor would he ever learn his brother's fate. He was about to order his men aboard the derelict vessel when an arrow struck the chest of a nearby sailor and an angry cry split the air. 
Miguel reeled around to see a group of indigenous men leap to the deck of his caravel, stone knives at the ready. A battle erupted on the deck as more and more fighters paddled to the ship and climbed the sides. Someone managed to weigh anchor, hoping that the current would bring the ship further out into the bay and away from their attackers. But it was too late. The boarding party swarmed the deck and descended upon the unarmed crew as Miguel and a handful of others barricaded themselves below deck. There, huddled in the dark, they listened to the sound of slaughter and of sharpened stone and steel pounding and scraping at the wooden door. They lit a lantern, searched the room, and armed themselves with matchlock rifles. The captain and his men realized that death was close at hand, and together they took a solemn oath. They would scuttle the ship. They would set the entire thing ablaze and rush to the deck. They would fight together and die together, and vowed that, as the flames consumed their bodies and consigned their ship to the deep, they would curse the water that would become their grave, and their restless spirits would return to haunt the bay for a thousand years. With a vicious cry, they dashed the lantern to the floor and rushed to the deck. The battle was long. Gunfire cracked across the fading sky as night fell and smoke billowed from the stern. That blackness turned to red flame that grew so high and burned so hot, the ship looked like a fireball drifting through the night. As the main deck gave way, those who weren't shot, stabbed, or burned alive clambered up the rigging in a desperate attempt to escape the blaze. Soon, that caught fire as well, along with the ropes and sails and spars. There was the sound of thunder as the three masts snapped and dropped into the bay, and the fire roared as it devoured what remained. Then, with the sound of shattering wood and rushing water, the ship suddenly lurched forward and sunk beneath the waves. The roar was gone in an instant, and only the sound of the sea remained. The curse had been set. The ship and everyone on it were now bound to the bay. When the 20th of August came and went, and Miguel's ship failed to rendezvous with the others, the captains waited. They anchored in a quiet bay, fished cod from the sparkling water, and watched as the sun set over the strange land to the west, where once Gaspar, and now Miguel, had disappeared. They waited and waited, but no ship appeared on the horizon. Nothing on the wind but the sharp edge of autumn, and the gloom of an encroaching storm. That was over 500 years ago, and that Portuguese ship still haunts Chalera Bay. It still burns like a beacon and brings bad luck to whoever may see it. And it will be like that for another 500 years, until the oath is honored and the curse is lifted. What you just heard is only one of the many legends of the origin of the fireship of Chalier Bay. It's also one of the most detailed due to the fact that it's tied to actual historic events. Gaspar and Miguel were real people, Portuguese explorers, brothers, and members of the famous Corte Real family who made their mark during the Age of Exploration by conducting some of the first exploratory voyages to what is known today as Newfoundland, Canada. Unfortunately, Gaspar also has the loathsome reputation for being one of the first, if not the first, European to capture and enslave indigenous people from what is today Newfoundland and Labrador. Like the legend says, Gaspar disappeared during his second voyage in 1501, a voyage that, despite the loss of its leader, was still considered a success thanks in part to the 57 captives brought back on the two surviving ships. His brother, Miguel, also an explorer, set out in search of Gaspar the following year, but he too disappeared. When he failed to make the rendezvous, the other two ships in his party sailed back to Lisbon without him. Now, that's what we know for sure. The rest of the story, Gaspar drowning in Chalera Bay, Miguel being ambushed and setting fire to his own ship, this is the stuff of legend. Scholars are almost certain that the people Gaspar had enslaved were from further east, either Inuit, Labrador Inu, or Newfoundland Beothuk. 
There's no evidence that Gaspar or Miguel ever ventured past Newfoundland, let alone the Belle Isle Strait, down the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and round the Gaspé Peninsula. But it's possible. So the legend remains, and for some, the fireship becomes a symbol of resistance, revenge, and punishment. Three themes that appear a lot in the folklore. First, let's look at another story with resistance as its central theme. In some French-speaking areas of New Brunswick and in Gaspé, Quebec, the fireship is a casualty of the clash for power between the French and English. Some stories say it was part of the Walker Expedition, a disastrous British attempt to invade Quebec in 1711. The fleet, said at the time to be one of the largest forces to ever cross the Atlantic, traveled north from Boston, then west through the Gulf of St. Lawrence, where they were caught in a sudden and violent storm. According to the legend, some of the ships were smashed against the rocks, but one was struck by lightning and destroyed by fire. Another version tells us that the Phantom Ship was actually a French supply ship during the Battle of Restigouche in 1760. On its way with much-needed supplies for the beleaguered French forces, the ship was driven into the Restigouche River by a British man-o'-war. Rather than allow his ship and supplies to fall into enemy hands, the captain decided to run the ship aground and set it on fire. He and his men watched their ship burn from the shore before venturing into the woods and to the nearest French settlement. As for the ship, it still burns like a beacon to this day, a symbol of Quebec's resistance and resilience. Next up is revenge and punishment, two very common themes in many of the stories. Some of the best-known legends in this category tell us that the phantom ship seen in Chaleur Bay and the Northumberland Strait is a pirate ship, manned by a crew who are cursed to sail the waters in recompense for their wicked lives. In one story, the pirate captain, a member of Captain Kidd's fleet, finds himself facing certain death shortly after stealing a rather large amount of treasure. Knowing he's about to die, he makes a pact with the devil to ensure that no one will ever be able to find or claim his treasure, saying he'd rather burn in hell than let someone take what was rightfully his. The devil's solution was simple, curse his ship and force him and his crew to sail and burn for eternity. Should anyone venture too close, they would simply disappear and reappear further up the water. Another story tells how some nameless pirates pillaged and sank a civilian ship before suddenly bursting into flames, a fate caused either by divine retribution or severe intoxication. In another, a violent mutiny leads to their destruction. In some French communities, the pirates either robbed and pillaged a church or a church-owned ship that was carrying a number of priests and nuns. There can be no doubt as to who took offense to that particular act, as the pirates were struck by lightning a short time later. Religious themes are also present in one Acadian story, shared decades ago by an old sailor who had recently celebrated his 101st birthday. In this story, the ship was sailing through a storm, and the entire crew called out in fear and agony, knowing they would die. One of the men dropped to his knees and began to pray and say his rosary. The others were enraged by this devout act and blamed him and his superstitions for their bad luck. They fell upon the helpless man and killed him. Moments later, the ship caught fire, and the murderous crew were burned alive and cursed to sail the ocean forever. But it wasn't an act of God that caused the fire. As the story goes, c'est le sang du catholique qui crie vengeance. It is the blood of the Catholic that cried out for revenge. Of course, you don't have to be Catholic to cry out for revenge. Another popular legend says that the pirates kidnapped a woman, then assaulted and killed her. Some say she was indigenous, others a settler. Either way, she or her mother, depending on the story, put a curse on her killers. As long as the world was the world, they would burn in the bay. This tragic story fits well with many eyewitness accounts, including that of Florence, which describe the figure of a woman in danger standing or being restrained on the deck of the burning ship. Finally, there are the legends that are simpler but no less tragic. 
Some say that they've seen elegant ladies and fashionable gentlemen twirling and dancing across the smoldering deck as if they were at a party. These descriptions have led to many legends that the fire ship was originally a pleasure ship, and that the attendees' shameless dancing and drunken debauchery led to a tragic fire on board. And then there are the stories that tell of a ship of immigrants, its name and origin long forgotten, that set sail from some distant port and never made it to its destination. This kind of story is relatively common throughout North America, and no matter where it's told, it seems that it's inspired by an actual mystery. We can assume that, at some point, a vessel carrying the loved ones of early settlers departed from Europe and never arrived. When the grieving families, desperate for closure, saw a flaming ship on the horizon, they may have taken it as a sign that their friends and family were truly lost. So that's a lot of different stories, and I could go on, but I think I've given you a good idea of the sheer number and variety of legends that surround these flaming phantom ships. And that leads us to an important question. Why? Why are there so many different stories about this one strange phenomenon? Why isn't there just one or two definitive legends? Well, it could be that the fire ship of Chalier Bay and the phantom ship of Northumberland Strait are not, in fact, spectral vessels at all, but something even more mysterious. Part 5. The Bay Chalier Light what many know today as the fire ship or the phantom ship hasn't always been so well defined. There was a time when many of the earliest settlers in the region knew it as le feu de mauvais temps, the bad weather light. In 1878, an article in The Examiner, a Prince Edward Island newspaper, warned its readers to expect heavy storms and dangerous seas in the coming months. How did they know? The bad weather lights. The author cautions, quote, The mysterious lights in the Gulf and the Lower St. Lawrence, those sure precursors of a tempestuous fall with grievous shipwrecks, have been unusually brilliant this season, end quote. They go on to explain how the quote-unquote phenomenal lights were spotted almost every night, from the middle of May to the end of August, by hundreds of people living along Chalier Bay. As far as the author is concerned, the implications are clear. It is a fact, he writes, established by the experience of a century, that when they blaze brightly in the summer nights, the fall is invariably marked by great storms. It's interesting to note that, in this article, there's not just one bad weather light. The author lists two, one off the Cape of Maria, Quebec, and the other near Point Maisonnette in New Brunswick. Perhaps more interesting is the fact that there's no mention or description of a phantom ship, though by that point the phenomenon is noted to have existed for a century at least. Remember the legend that the phantom ship was once part of a British invasion force? Well, according to this article, these mysterious lights precede that event. In fact, the main navigator of that invasion force apparently watched those lights dance on the horizon for several hours before the fleet was caught in a massive and deadly storm, resulting in one of the worst naval disasters in British history. The author notes that some people believe the lights are supernatural markers of shipwrecks or murders, yet as far as appearances go, there's nothing more than mysterious lights, closer to Will-o'-the-Wisp than the Flying Dutchman. Here's the description. Quote, the heavens behind are bright, and the clouds above silvered by the reflection. The sea for half a mile is covered with a sheen of phosphorus. The fire itself seems to consist of blue and yellow flames, now dancing high above the water, and then flickering, paling and dying out, only to spring up again with fresh brilliancy. If a boat approaches, it flits away, moving further out, and the bold visitor pursues in vain. End quote. To be honest, this 150-year-old article could be describing a modern-day UFO, or maybe a UFFO, an unidentified flying, floating object. And I think that's an apt comparison. Today, we're so steeped in science fiction that if someone saw something that fit this description and they didn't have centuries of phantom ship folklore to persuade them, they could very well think that they've seen a spacecraft from an alien world. 
But back in the 1800s, when the age of sail was far closer in our minds than the age of spaceflight, labeling it as a flaming phantom ship was, perhaps, an easier conclusion. In fact, the article notes that, quote, one would think on looking at these mysteries from the shore that a ship was on fire, end quote. An example of exactly this kind of thinking occurred in Chaleur Bay just a few years earlier, and it comes to you now in the form of the last story for the evening. In August of 1884, the Philadelphia Times published a travel article about one nameless author's journey to northern New Brunswick. There, amongst paragraphs about a 50-pound salmon and moose hunting in the backcountry, you'll find a retelling of an unnamed guide's encounter with a mysterious light on Chaleur Bay. The dialect and descriptions are so great, I thought that instead of telling the story in my own way, it would be more fun to share the story exactly as it was quoted. So here it is, read by Barry Flynn, co-host of the very entertaining Some Weird podcast. There's something curious about that country, about Chaque River. There's a light about it that they call the Phantom of the Bay de Chaleur. Never saw it but once. But there's folks living around here, know it well, and they don't like to talk about it. The time I saw it was in 74. But up in the Grand Banks, cod fishing, and was coming down home. It was pitch dark night, and we reckoned we were right off the bay here. It was my watch on deck. I just got aft to speak to the man at the wheel when he yells out, Look out! A meteor! I turned on the mint and seen a sight that made my air stand on end. There was a fireball that looked like a big comet, with a head on it as big as the schooner herself, a rushing down towards the water. The queerest part of it was, it didn't go out. It seemed to strike the sea about 200 fathoms off, and instead of going out, it kinder spread out like a big cloud. It scared Bill Davis so that he dropped the elm and the scooter came banging up to the wind that brought the skipper and all hands on deck. What's the matter with you, he shouts. And then, seeing the light, he sings out, Show a light there. She'll run us down. Ship ahoy! Port your elm! You see, he thought it was a ship. That ain't no ship, Cap, says I. But he wouldn't pay no attention to me. I'll call out orders, and in a minute... He had the schooner on the wind again. By the time the light was within a hundred foot of us, and come on a moment, looking for all the world like a full-rigged ship afore the wind. On he come, and the skipper went nigh crazy, and taking his trumpet, he jumps into the weather rigging and sings out, Ship ahoy! Port your elm! You're running us down! Ship ahoy! But on he come, and just as he yelled for the men to jump for their lives, the thing struck us. Well, sir, the skipper was that took back that he fell back on the deck and never said a word. It is? No. We went through it just like a cloud. And afore the men got over being scared, it was a half a mile to lubber. It was nothing but the beta shallow light. It takes all kinds of shapes. Sometimes it's up in the air, then shooting along near the surface of the water or bouncing along like a football. Sometimes, just as I saw it, it looks like a football, and then takes the shape of a ship and goes flying around over the water. Most men thinks it's a phantom ship, like the Flying Dutchman. Some thinks it's the ghost of an old wreck that went down here a few years ago. But between you and me, it's nothing but the Badish Allure Light. A comet plummeting through the sky. A gaseous cloud lingering on the sea. A light rushing towards you, a ship sailing on the wind. Captured in this one story are all the various forms of the elusive lights of Chaleur Bay, and the vivid descriptions bring up a good point. Do the lights actually take or reveal the form of a ship, or do they just give the impression of a ship? The description also matches a different legend from Picto Island, where a mysterious lady in white has been seen wandering the cliffs of the western shore or walking straight into the sea before a giant ball of flame rises from the water, shoots out across the ocean, and takes the form of a flaming ship, the phantom ship of the Northumberland Strait. The stories, like the infamous lights, have a history of transformation. 
While some in the mid-19th century saw only lights on the horizon, by the late 1880s and beyond, the mysterious lights had become the stuff of legends, mixed with tales of pirates, damsels in distress, and lost treasure. In 1886, when the Royal Engineers were surveying the Northumberland Strait along the coast of Prince Edward Island, rumors began to swirl that they were searching for the lost treasure of Captain Kidd, a famous pirate said to have buried a king's ransom anywhere from Newfoundland to New Jersey. One man claimed that he had seen the engineers performing the same task in New Brunswick's Chaleur Bay, and, according to an article in Prince Edward Island's Daily Examiner, such rumors, quote, brought out quite a host of stories about ships on fire and lights at sea here, which have been seen from time to time here for the past half-century at least." End quote. The idea that the mysterious light can take on many forms is often found in older stories told by sailors, fishermen, and lighthouse keepers who claim to have seen it multiple times. In 1952, a man in his mid-80s who was the former manager of a salt cod firm spoke to a reporter from Maclean's magazine. He spoke with confidence and conviction, saying, quote, I have seen the fire ship hundreds of times. It takes various forms. Usually it is a sailing vessel wrapped in flames, but it has also been a shapeless ball of fire, a ship's lantern, and once in 1906 it was a burning steamer. How do I explain the fire ship? There are those who say it is a mixture of imagination and phosphorus, or imagination and St. Elmo's fire. For myself, I can't explain the unexplainable. But I have seen it, yes, hundreds of times." End quote. You might not be able to explain the unexplainable, but you can explore it. And that leads us to the last part of this episode. Part 6. Electricity, Illusions, and Explosions there's one last thing to discuss. Aside from the supernatural, if we wanted to scientifically explain the phenomena seen in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, how would we do so? Well, the truth is, we can't. In 1907, Dr. W. G. Genong made headlines by declaring that the fireship of Chaleur Bay was likely caused by, quote, some natural light of the general nature of St. Elmo's fire, end quote. St. Elmo's fire, in case you don't know, is a weather phenomenon caused by luminous plasma and a particularly intense electric field in the atmosphere. The problem is, St. Elmo's fire typically burns blue or purple and is almost exclusively found sparking on the tip of a pointed object, like the propeller on a plane or the mast of a ship, and that's a far cry from the massive red and orange blaze described by eyewitnesses. Others suggest it's a Fata Morgana, a special kind of optical illusion that is said to be responsible for most phantom ship sightings over the last few centuries. Now, conditions have to be just right for that mirage to appear, with a cold mass of air along the surface of the water and a warm layer of air on top. This, in turn, acts like a refracting lens, magnifying and sometimes inverting objects on the horizon. Another proposed explanation is that people are simply mistaking the setting sun or moon for a fiery ship on the water. Now, these all sound like great explanations, until you remember that the fire ship has been spotted at all times of day, in all seasons, and all weather conditions, including in ice-covered water, when no ship would be sailing. And then there's the fact that many witnesses have reported not just a hazy image of a ship, but clear details of smoke, fire, people climbing the rigging, even the figurehead on the bow of the ship. Were these people simply fooled by an optical illusion, or did they see something more, something that can't be explained? While a flaming ship might be difficult to explain, a blazing light is a bit easier. The most popular scientific explanation for the mysterious lights is that they're caused by some sort of flammable gas released by underwater vents at the bottom of the bay and strait. This is a solid theory, similar to how swamp gas has been used to explain modern-day sightings of UFOs, though it's unclear why these gaseous expulsions would quote-unquote flit away, as one article put it, whenever a ship would draw near. If the gas theory is true, it explains why stories of mysterious lights seem to be much older than any stories about phantom ships. 
As we've learned, the stories of mystery lights go as far back as 1711, though it's likely that the phenomenon is much, much older. Some century-old newspapers and books claim that the indigenous people of the area, the Mi'kmaq, originally told settlers about the strange lights on the water, but I haven't been able to confirm those claims. However, there is one thing that we've learned from the Mi'kmaq that seems appropriate to mention. The town and county of Picto, Nova Scotia, is located on the north shore of the province, nestled on an arm of the Northumberland Strait. As you might imagine, that area has boasted quite a few phantom ship sightings throughout the years. According to the book Place Names of Atlantic Canada, Picto has one of the oldest names in the province, because it descends from the Mi'kmaq word, Piktuk. Piktuk, according to the book's author, means an explosion. More accurately, it means an explosion of gas. Or, as linguist Bernie Francis recently explained, it means fart. Picto means fart. But why? Well, no one knows for sure, but Francis suggests that the Mi'kmaq took their inspiration from the foul-smelling sulfur found in some parts of the county, while others believe it may have something to do with the methane gas that occasionally leaks from the coal seams below the harbor. If enough gas escapes, and it's somehow lit by an electrical charge in the atmosphere, we may be a little closer to explaining the nature of these mysterious lights. Other books on the subject mention the possibility that Picto comes from the Mi'kmaq word Pugtu, meaning fire. Whatever the meaning, considering everything we've learned, it's likely that the Mi'kmaq, the people who have lived in that region since at least the 9th millennium BC, would have seen what some call phantom ships at least 6,000 years before the first sailing ship was ever built. In a 2014 essay titled Manifestations of the Flying Dutchman, Dr. Agnes Anduig does a deep dive into the legend of the most legendary of phantom ships. She explains how many British sailors were frightened by the story because it represented so many things they feared. The collapse of an empire, the quality of being present and absent all at once, and the idea of being powerless, homeless, and lost forever. In a similar way, the fireship of Shaler Bay and the phantom ship of Northumberland Strait have been a lot of things to a lot of different people, and they express all manner of fear and anxiety in every story they tell. As a ship of European exploration and indigenous enslavement, we see the anxieties and deflected guilt of colonialism, and the fear of indigenous resistance and retaliation. As a British troop transport ship or a French supply ship, we see the anxieties of national identity, control, and imperial totalitarianism. As a pirate ship, we see the fears of young colonies and small coastal communities that were constantly threatened by war and the lawlessness. As a pleasure ship full of drinking and dancing, we see the fear of intemperance and societal breakdown. And as an immigrant ship that never reaches the shore, we sense the same fear that British sailors may have felt about the Flying Dutchman. The fear of being homeless and lost. A fear that many settlers then, and many new Canadians today, might face when they come to this new and unfamiliar country. Once they step off the soil of their former land, can they trust that they will ever again find a place they can call home? There is also the simple fear of the unknown, which we can find in virtually every ghost story ever written. Folklorist Catherine Jolicoeur once theorized that all of these phantom ship stories ultimately exist to explain a phenomenon that, even today, we don't quite understand. People saw a fire burning on the sea, and they couldn't explain it. So they created legends to do what science could not. Today, the flaming phantom ships are burning more brightly than ever. The stories are in countless books, blogs, and online videos. In 2014, Canada Post released a special stamp. In 2022, the Royal Canadian Mint issued a 5-ounce coin of pure silver with a glow-in-the-dark phantom ship that can be revealed with a blacklight. They sold out almost immediately, and I kinda want one, so Royal Canadian Mint, if you're listening and you still have one kicking around, give me a call. Even though the age of the sailing ship is long past, 
these stories still manage to capture our interest and imagination. They're fun, they're thrilling, and they help us feel a stronger connection to the water, the land, its people, and its history. I'd like to close with the words of Professor Ralph Childs, a man who was, at one time, considered one of the world's foremost authorities on phantom ships. As long as we have ghost trains, phantom rickshaws, poltergeists, and flying saucers, we will have, I hope, ghost ships. That's it for this episode. Special thanks to Barry Flynn for his performance. Barry is the co-host, along with his sister Chrissy, of the Some Weird podcast. If you like weird stories told by funny Canadians, check them out. Thank you so much for listening, and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Now that you know the story, share it. And remember, if you ever see a mysterious fire burning on the ocean, take care. Someone or something might be trying to warn you that rough seas are ahead. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams. Sound design and mixing is by Braden Alexander. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. If you want to help even further, you can provide story ideas and more through my website. Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca.